Hi, I'm Natalie Gawkner. This is Both Sides of the Aisle. I represent the political center and have on the political right, John Dougal. Hey, Natalie Gawkner. Hey, listeners. Good to be with you again. We love having the state auditor on the program and on the political left, Shereen Gorbani. Hello, and hey, listeners. So grateful you tuned in. Okay, Shireen and John, I'm ready to declare that I am ready for the Republican Party to make their move and dispense with our I thought former you were president. Say Thanksgiving's over, you can put up your Christmas decorations. <laughs> well, that's true too, but I I think we're running out of time to consolidate support in the Republican Party around somebody other than the former president. And uh, Nikki Haley is my candidate. She's got the right temperament. She's got international experience. She's a faith, family, country kind of conservative. I'm ready, John. We've got to do uh, yeah, something. I imagine you are. And, and with Tim Scott dropping out of the race, suspending his candidacy, uh, you know, that seems to open up South Carolina quite a bit. And that's going to be one of the early states. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see how she does. So we've talked a little bit about timeline before, but it really the clock is ticking, Natalie, you're right. We're, I think we're 50 days out from Iowa. So that is the first um, caucus night. So we'll see somebody, hopefully uh, not Donald Trump emerge in first from that. I, I continue to think he's got a stronghold on Republicans, um, not just in Iowa, but around the country. So that's our first one. So I believe that's like January 15th. And then it's kind of off to the races. Then we've got New Hampshire and, and others coming closely behind that. So I think you're right in terms of timing. I think the question I have is, do you really get the sense that Republicans generally are done with Trump? Mm. Well, I want to ask you this, Shireen. Okay. What, what can Are you done with Trump? <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm done. <laughs> what candidate do you think is most formidable against President Biden? I, I, I would value your input there because I think Nikki Haley is. Okay, so again, I, and, and I know I've mentioned this before, but we're really thinking about a presidential election being decided in a handful of states. Those states are Wisconsin, uh, potentially Michigan, um, potentially Arizona, um, Georgia. So I would be thinking about candidates that may have, for some reason, either it's geographic, uh, political, um, to align to do better in those states. Mm -hmm. And that's where I have to say, when I think about kind of more moderate and centrist voters, that's where I think about somebody like Chris Christie, honestly. I think he would have the ability to pull uh, independents and Republicans who feel really abandoned by the party. Um, but I don't think he's got a fighting chance, honestly. Mm -hmm. John, let's hear what you have to say, because I'm curious who you think has the greatest ability to consolidate the party and, and push the former president out and who would be the most formidable candidate against President Biden? Um, I think given where we're sitting today, I think uh, DeSantis has been uh, too cautious. And so I think uh, many folks are looking for an alternative to him. Mm -hmm. um, I think Chris Christie is probably viewed more as a spoiler. Um, and Doug Burgum, uh, bless his heart, is is not I'm surprised he wasn't at the top of Shereen's list. But I really like him a lot. But Governor I just of North don't Dakota, see him, for those who have forgotten. I just don't see him really uh, picking up steam yeah. right now. And so, therefore, I do see Nikki Haley uh, emerging as the likely alternative to Donald Trump. And I do think she pulls well against Joe Biden. Yeah, she I does. Think, now, uh, her age and her gravitas and experience yeah. all bode well for her. Well, so with the clock ticking, what I would do is we know that this Thursday we have this really exciting debate between two governors, Governor of Florida, Governor of California, two, you know, what? We got Ron DeSantis versus uh, Gavin Newsom. Gavin Newsom. 
two states from, you know, the, the coastal states, one that's sort of the flagship for conservatism, one that's the flagship for liberalism. Uh, at least in the case of Governor Newsom, he's a skilled debater. So what I'm looking for with the clock ticking to see if DeSantis does well on this Fox News debate or if he underperforms and underwhelms, and that would be the beginning of Nikki Haley's last rise. John, Shireen? I really wish he would have done, they would have done this debate last summer. I mean, July, August is when I really wanted to see this. Right now, um, I mean, I'm looking forward to the debate. I'd really like folks to debate the policies of California versus Florida and pros and cons of, of progressive versus conservative type of principles. Um, but I think we're unfortunately going to have the presidential race hanging over it. I think you've got DeSantis, who's going to be cautious about not wanting to make a misstep that's going to affect him in his presidential bid. And I think Gavin Newsom is going to be cautious because he's the standard bearer out there for Biden on so many things. But I think that's because he's hoping that Biden wakes up in the next few weeks and says, I'm too old. And Gavin says, hey, pick me. I'm right here. Yeah. So I would actually like to see more of these kinds of I think debates is maybe a bit um overblown, kind of useless. I think Mm -hmm. people are trying to score political points and have these kind of quippy responses. But I do wish that we would have more conversations like this, because I do think that there is a real difference in the kind of tone and tenor of governance Mm -hmm. that's happening in places like, for example, I would love to see Gretchen Whitmer sit down and have a conversation with Spencer Cox. I would love to see these kind of more moderate kind of middle of the road states that in some ways really are rising to the challenges that we see. I'm not saying that, well, I think Florida is not. I think Florida is a failed state. But when I think about um, kind of the extremes. And I think California is a failed state. One of the reasons I moved away. I don't think the extremes provide a lot of um, opportunity for Mm -hmm. us to really think and challenge where it is that we're seeing policies, progressive policies uh, that, that advance a cause on either side. I wish we had more of these kinds of conversations. Um, I do think that uh, Gavin Newsom is incredibly charming. I think he will do well. He is, as you mentioned, a formidable debater, the way that he stores information in his brain. And I think the way that uh, Governor DeSantis comes off, frankly, as smug, as kind of unrelatable, is is not going to play well for him. And, And I do think this is a mistake for DeSantis to engage in. That's where I'm at, Shireen, because I think uh, Governor Newsom has everything to gain from this. You know, going on Fox and being as he's well spoken, everybody. If you don't agree with his politics, fine, but you got to watch this guy in action. Now, here's my question John, what's one question you would ask Governor Newsom? And then, Shireen, I'm going to ask you one question you would ask Governor DeSantis. Uh, I would ask uh, Gavin Newsom, uh, what is something. Uh, that you learned in COVID that if you had it to do over again, you would do differently. Mm -hmm. That's great. Because that, and if he did something about closing schools or something, it would show that he's willing to change course and not be a, you know, I don't know, ideological, but rather be pragmatic. Uh, Shereen? I would really love to hear uh, Governor DeSantis talk in detail about what his plans are for an aging population when he is a person who supports, um, you know, reducing cutting Social Security, thinking about cuts to Medicare. When you have as many retirees in your state as he does, how does that translate to a message on a national scale in a country where, frankly, we fail seniors too often? Mm. I'll tell you, you aren't asking me, and I have a bunch of questions I'd want to ask, but I would, I would want to. Natalie, ask. what are the top four questions you'd <laughs> well, ask them? I would want to put 
Governor DeSantis in a position where he has to speak to Donald Trump's character. To me, that would be really interesting, right? Because because if he blows it off, it says, oh my goodness, character doesn't matter to this man. And if he speaks, you know, with candor about it, it would separate him from the, you know, that part of the Republican Party that I think is ill-informed. So, okay. Well, Natalie, one of the challenges there is the audience. And sometimes, you know, we even struggle with this sometimes. How do we convey our perspectives with the audience we're speaking to? You don't want to lose them in the process. Right. And, and they'll be speaking to the Fox News audience. Yeah, yeah, that's right. This is part of why I think my question would be good. Because <laughs> I want to put him in a position to have to not equivocate, but to be a leader. You know, yeah. not follow you know, the, the marching band, but like be the leader of the band. So what question would you ask Gavin Newsom? Uh, what have you done to build instead of tear down? I, I'm, I'm interested in people that are builders. So I, I might try to put that into a policy question. Okay. I want to do one more thing before we go to break. Uh, Senator Mike Lee spends Thanksgiving in Israel. He tweets about it. He says he and his wife are, you know, visiting with the Israel Defense Forces, the IDF. Uh, what do you think of that visit, Shireen? Is that uh, well-timed? Uh, do you think that's a good use of our senator's time? I don't think it's a good use of our senator's time. Um, I also hope that what he's ultimately doing is bringing back kind of a, a broader picture about what is happening. It sounds like he did express some concerns about aid getting into into Gaza and, and additional um, perspectives on the issue. Uh, I, I don't think Senator Lee's presence helps. Mm-hmm. John, your thoughts here? Well, I mean, as a U.S. senator, whether it's Senator Lee or somebody else, um, clearly the issues of Israel, Gaza, and so forth are going to be big issues, whether it's funding, whether it's, you know, debating a two-state solution, other things like that. What recognition is the U.S. government going to have for any type of uh, solution out there? And so I do think it's important for senators to get a better understanding, whether that's being there in person or not, we can debate that. But I think just learning about the issue and having a better understanding, because they are going to be faced with those debates on Capitol Hill, that's critical. Yeah. You know, I'm not as strong as Shireen on this point. I, I, I find it just fine that he went to Israel for Thanksgiving. I think it's great when he has this interaction and sees, you know, for himself and has that access to decision makers in Israel. I do wonder, though, really quickly, John and Shireen, what is the alternative to a two-state solution? Is, has anybody articulated that? A one-state solution <laughs> okay. where, where Palestinians done. aren't second-class citizens. Yeah. But the challenge with a two-state solution is you look at what just happened. And how do you, if you're Israel, how do you avoid having, um, you know, right there, violent neighbors that are willing to attack you on various issues and at various times? Mm-hmm. And how do you be state safe as a country? Mm-hmm. And that's a challenge. This is why, like in all international conflicts, the diplomatic side of, you know, solving problems versus going to war is where you got to put your time and energy. At least that's my thinking. Okay, in our next segment, we're going to talk about uh, Celeste Malloy in the 2nd Congressional District. Uh, Stay tuned, everybody. I'm Natalie Gochner with Shereen Gorbani and John Dougal. Shereen Gorbani on the left. John Dougal on the right. Natalie Gochner and I'm in the political center, and this is both sides of the aisle. We're talking about local uh, public affairs, politics, policy, you name it. And we have a new uh, congresswoman in the state of Utah. Celeste Malloy wins the second congressional district, uh, beating uh, Senator Kathleen Reby. Uh, it was a pretty much a blowout, John and Shereen. Looks like somewhere around 57 to 34 um, percent. 
My understanding is that Celeste Malloy is going to be sworn in this week. Is that right, John? Uh, my understanding is she's being sworn in on Tuesday. So when listeners hear this, she will already have been sworn in. Okay. And so Shireen and John, what, how does that work? Because I thought she had to do a canvas and it has to be yeah. completely done. So I'm not totally sure. I, my senses give, it's the margin. Mm-hmm. And so the sense, like, even if, even if it changed a couple, I, for an election like that to change a couple thousand votes, it would be highly, uh, would not have happened. Mm-hmm. But even a couple hundred, it's just not going to make a difference. Yeah. And, and the House gets to judge kind of who sits there mm-hmm. in the House. And so they get to judge their members to a certain extent. I just have to pause and say how unusual I find it to uh, have a political newcomer that comes seemingly from out of nowhere who's a woman, who's been a staffer, you know, a lot of people don't progress from staff to elected official, uh, to pull this off. And I give her tons of credit for that. Uh, So I think it's a big deal. Yeah, it is a big deal. And it's given hope to all the staffers out there. (laughs) Maybe I can run. All right. Well, we also got the election results from our capital city, which, of course, represents our wonderful state uh, worldwide. It's the front porch to Utah. And uh, the wonderful Aaron Mendenhall takes a, a second term. And Shireen, you're a Salt Lake City resident. Give us some color commentary on Mayor Mendenhall's victory. Yeah, so we have talked about this a couple of times on the program, but going into this election, and frankly, most of our local elections in Utah, there really isn't a lot of polling that's shared. There's not a good way exactly to understand, you know, where the energy or momentum is. But I think for a lot of people, there was a sense that um, you had a choice kind of between looking back and and continuing to move forward. And I, I guess one of the questions that I have, and, and truly, like a lot of the messaging around Rocky's campaign was, and I saw these signs go up in my neighborhood just on like the day before election day. And it said things were better, like this thing, like homelessness was better under Rocky. This thing was better under Rocky. And what I think happened ultimately was a teeing up of a campaign that was very backwards looking. And in fact, many of the times that I heard Rocky speak, even though I often agree with him on, you know, um, policy, um, I, I don't always find that I agree with him on approach, but I certainly value um, the the values that he brings to the table. I just really think that for a lot of Salt Lakers, this kind of message of backwards looking and, um, you know, harping on the problem of homelessness, which frankly is a problem across every major city in this country, not unique to Salt Lake City. Um, I I don't think it resonated. And I think the question that I have for you both is in Utah, when I first ran, people said, you know, Utahns don't like negative campaigning. And I, on actually the congressional level, think that's not true. I think Utahns kind of like negative campaigning. Mm -hmm. I I don't think that they don't like it. Um, But when it comes to Oh, they don't like it, but it works. It works. I think at your city level, it's still, it doesn't work. People don't like it. Um, what is your sense on that? Mm, you know, well, first sense is he shouldn't have done the billboard with Doc Marty and the DeLorean. He should have just skipped that whole back to the future thing. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead, Natalie. Oh, you know, I mean, my lesson, I think it's really hard to do things a second time. Look at what happened to Governor John Huntsman. Yeah. You know, I mean, how did Spencer Cox beat Governor John Huntsman? who'd been, you know, ambassador in these two incredibly important strategic countries, China and Russia. 
and a very successful governor. Yes, you know, high approval ratings. Popular. Yeah, and I think that uh, going back that second time doesn't always work. I think it's harder than people think. But mostly I give credit to Mayor Mendenhall. I mean, she uh, did her part on affordable housing. She's administered a Salt Lake Airport rebuild terrifically. She's got a great sustainability record. She's represented our capital city so well on the international stage with the Olympics. Uh, And she's negotiated with state legislators with patience and with grace. Um, I think she's the complete candidate for this city and and this state. And so I, I think she carries the day. I also think that Salt Lake City has a preference for female leaders. And I think that they have a preference for younger leaders. I really do. Mm, interesting. John, do you have any any perspective here? I mean, I referenced the legislature, but a lot of uh, Mayor Mendenhall's social media was sort of focused on the point that even if you disagree with someone, you have to do it with dignity and with kindness and with respect. And, you know, she's tried really hard with a legislature that isn't that kind to Salt Lake City sometimes to have a lot of forbearance. Well, I, I can see where you're coming with that perspective, but that also contrasts with Rocky. Rocky had a reputation <laughs> of being a brawler and a fighter. And so therefore she can stake out a lane with that narrative, which is, Hey, I can, I can deal with the rough and tumble of the legislature and still be respectful in that process versus the guy over there who just wants to blow things up and cause mayhem uh-huh. and stuff. And that's a powerful message right there in and of itself. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's go to uh, Governor Cox's world. Uh, Spencer Cox has launched a $7 million initiative to build uh, the life sciences workforce. This is medical devices. This is something that Utah uh, excels at uh, nationally and particularly Salt Lake County excels at. I, I think this is akin to Governor Levitt's engineering initiative that tried to double the number of uh, computer scientists, engineers, and math majors at our institutions of higher learning. I give Governor Cox huge kudos for investing in human capital. Thoughts? Well, yeah, so I like this as well. I'm curious. I feel like John's going to feel like it's picking winners and losers. I'd love to hear. Oh, yes, it is. I'd love to hear the classic argument. tax dollars in the process. Come on, John. We're just oh, we're, talking we're about gonna, investing we, we in We don't skills? have a strong economy when it comes to life sciences, when you compare us nationally. And I sit there, and on the one side, I keep hearing, you know, we need to stop picking winners and losers. We need to get rid of these corporate incentives and other things like that. And then I watch, oh, we're going to take $7 million of taxpayer money and sprinkle it out there and magic pixie dust and good things will happen. Okay, if- and I can't tell you how many times I hear the government saying, we're going to invest and it's going to give a return. That's the government is so horrible at trying to get a return on its dollar. I mean, Shireen just popped John, in a nickel here. But there's a line. But you look time and time again, if we really believe this was an incentive, we'd set it aside. We'd invest the money. We'd see what kind of return we got. But that's not how we do things. Okay, John, we'll have to take this off the air. But I have to say that when you're investing in people, human capital, training, skills, he wants to educate over a thousand new life science students year after year. That is something that government appropriately does and it stays with the person it's not it's not a handout and the government does it poorly you look at higher ed you look at public ed we do it poorly we do it inefficiently we do it costly okay. we're we're educating sometimes for what happened decades ago and not for the future because we so, 
We have a hard time. We know what you think, John. So I have to say, <laughs> I feel like what I would love to see is an initiative that says, we're going to build the care economy of the future in Utah. When we think about the uh, huge gap that we have around child care, um, an article came out in Axios today that basically said, do not retire here. This is not a good state for people to age. Um, when we think about the kind of demands that are going to happen as a, as a population ages, I would be really inspired if our governor came forward and said, we're going to invest $7 million on making Utah the center of a care economy that actually works for private, for public to try to figure that out. I would think that was incredible. Well, and I'm just going to add, John, you won't like this comment, but we're always saying, oh, John, you should run for this, or John, you should do this. We have a vacancy right now in the commissioner of higher ed in this state. Why don't you go do that? And then you could make all these reforms happen. <laughs> He's smiling. <laughs> We have an interesting dynamic when it comes to commissioner. It's a thankless job that has not much power, and you got to have a board that backs you. And historically, we did not have a strong board of higher ed. Yeah, lots going on. Okay, Shireen, I'm sorry to stay with John, but I'm going to go one more needling him because we got the new announcement from the State Land Authority on the Phase 1 agreement for development of the point. This is the former Utah State prison site. So is this a proper role of government, to buy land and develop land? Uh, no, no, it's not. And and yet again, I keep hearing we're going to have this great investment and somehow we're going to sink 50 to $100 million into this thing. And it sounds like we're building daybreak. Now, I hope that it's something better than that. I hear folks uh, talk about this is the most valuable piece of property in the state. But you look and go time and time again, do I really want state government, the legislature, uh, independent agencies, whatever it might be, being a land developer, I don't think we really want the government in the land development business. Mm -hmm. And in fact, too often, sometimes we interfere with the land development business that causes other issues. And so then we layer on a new program that has unintended okay. consequences. So Shireen, we're establishing, you know, where the role of government works for John and where it works for me. I'm all for investing in human capital, education people. I get a little bit squishier when we're, you know, it, investing in real estate. <laughs> now, how about you, Shereen? Yeah, so I would say just uh, looking at the initial numbers, talking about the amount of housing that was coming in here, I think it's uh, over 3,000 units. Does that sound right? In this mm -hmm. first phase of development, only 400 of those are affordable. So when I think about a legislature having a heavy hand in the development, I would say not this legislature. I would prefer to see, um, you know, maybe an approach that would do more to address the housing affordability crisis that we have in our state. Um, I do think housing is a human right, and it would be interesting to see uh, an approach that would prioritize housing that was truly for families and truly affordable in this region. Um, but I also have to say, this is this is a tough one for me, because having been in a decision-making role when we're looking at these kinds of developments, the way that they get prioritized and what kinds of housing is built, and then also thinking about, you know, if we didn't have any role of government in it, what would be the limit in terms of cost? How would that get managed? Mm -hmm. There's a, I think there's a healthy role, but exactly how it works, I think, is yet to be seen. Yeah, yeah very good. Well, beyond role of government. Let's talk about the Olympics, you two. Um, we know that there's always, you know, news coming out about what the International Olympic Committee is saying and doing, but it looks like our state might be getting some news. Uh, Shireen, do you want to summarize that? 
Yeah, well, I would just say that we're anticipating, so we're recording this before the announcement's coming out, but this week there will be additional announcements to help us understand exactly where we stand in terms of uh, the likelihood of getting the Olympics here. And I know, Natalie, this is something near and dear to your heart. Um, As we kind of await these announcements, what kinds of things should we be looking for? Well, I'm going to make a commitment to listeners that by our next program, I'm going to calculate how many Utahns you know, are here now that didn't experience the 2002 Olympic Winter Games. It's a stunningly large number, both because of in-migration and new births. But I think it's uh, terrific for our state to um, either uh, find their way into targeted dialogue with the IOC for either the 2030 or 2034 Games. John? Uh, I just want to know which event is your favorite. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm going to go to the skiing and probably the downhill, the women's downhill. Okay. Yeah. John, you? Shireen? I'm a figure skating girl, let's be honest. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm kind of intrigued by that whole skeleton, you know, come barreling (laughs) down, and it just seems wild. Uh, Shireen, just to remind everyone how exciting it gets, uh, Sarah Hughes was the Olympic gold in 2002 figure skating. She was in third going into the last night. I think it was maybe fourth going into the last night of the program, and she skated so well, she catapulted to a gold medal when she was 16 years old. It was terrific. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it was terrific. So we're going to hear a lot more about that. John, uh, do you have any perspective from Capitol Hill, how they view this spending for the Olympics, our positioning for Olympics? Part of why I ask that is as we grow, well, as we have growth concerns, maybe people don't get as happy about hosting another Games. I think some like how it showcases the state and others are going to be concerned that it's going to bring even more people to the state of Utah. And we've got concerns about housing and, and growth and everything else. Yeah. So it'll be mixed. Yeah. And it's still quite a ways away. So a lot could change before then. So That's right. Yeah. Well, great program. So good to spend time with you. I'm Natalie Gawkner with John Dougal and Shireen Gorbani. Our program is produced by Anthony Skoma. He's a great producer. Thank you, Anthony, for all you do. And thanks, listeners, for coming on and listening. 